This is an ABC podcast. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The continuance of the Cold War is making the United Nations system more and more unworkable. If you're old enough to remember the Cold War, you'll remember periods of heightened fear, tension and anxiety. Times when even cool heads and serious thinkers saw the inevitability of a nuclear Armageddon. It's popular in some quarters to compare the geopolitical tensions of today with the latter part of the 20th century, but such comparisons are more rhetorical than real. Now, the Cold War might be long gone, but its remnants still remain in the East versus West thinking of someone like Vladimir Putin, and according to one of our guests today, in an unexpected place, in the attitude we have to environmental management. Ecosystem science, says ecologist Laura Martin, is doomsday science. And she'll explain what she means by that in just a moment. We'll also get an update on how the world is likely to end from a man with a fascination for mega-catastrophes. And we'll hear about the philosophical arguments both for and against human extinction. Yeah, so this is a relatively new field that focuses on questions concerning whether or not causing or allowing our extinction would be morally right or morally wrong, whether our extinction, if it happens either because of our own actions or as a result of natural phenomena, whether it would be good or bad, or you know whether being extinct would be in some sense better or in another sense worse than us continuing to exist. That's at the core of this field of existential ethics. And that's to come a little later. Hello, Anthony Fennell here with what could possibly be labelled the existential edition of Future Tense. But let's talk first about the impact the Cold War continues to have on our way of viewing the environment with Laura Martin, an historian, ecologist and professor of environmental studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. Beginning in the 1940s, the United States began detonating nuclear weapons in order to develop them and see what their impacts would be on enemy warships and enemy cities. In kind of doing these experiments, they kind of on the side did experiments about how radiation would impact natural ecosystems and how radiation would move throughout the environment. And when these above-ground detonations were banned in the 1960s with the Partial Test Ban Treaties, the U.S. military continued to fund experiments that did not use weapons, but still placed radiation intentionally in the environment. So starting in 1962, at a number of sites in the continental United States, as well as in colonized Puerto Rico, the United States put cesium-137 and other piles of radioactive sources into forests and kept them there for a period of months to years in order to observe what happened to the species in the forest when they were irradiated. And it's through these experiments that ecologists developed 
the idea of disturbance ecology and the kind of hypotheses that we're, again, very familiar with today in ecology and in conservation. The idea, for example, that ecosystems that have a greater number of species are more robust and more resilient than ecosystems that have fewer species. Or the idea that there's a threshold of damage beyond which ecosystems can no longer repair themselves. So we hear this in climate change discourse all the time today, either that we are approaching a threshold or we have already crossed a threshold of warming beyond which there will be catastrophic effects. And so that very idea of a threshold, interestingly, comes from these doomsday experiments trying to imagine what would happen to non-human species in the case of World War III. So continually making decisions about the environment through a prism of impending catastrophe is so ingrained in our way of thinking about the natural world that many of us are no longer aware of it, according to Professor Martin. The very idea of resilience assumes that damage has already happened and that it is inescapable and ongoing. And in that way, it really is a kind of accepting of the status quo and an emphasis on living in a already damaged world. And that emphasis does run the risk of drawing attention away from efforts to imagine and create a world in which the damage does not happen in the first place or the damage is not ongoing. So in the case of climate change resilience research, there's a lot of concern that those efforts to, say, design ecosystems that will withstand climate change or even genetically engineer species that will survive climate change takes resources and attention away from efforts to reduce the combustion of fossil fuels in the first place. And our approach to environmental management wasn't always that way, was it? I mean, there was a time pre the Cold War and these experiments when we had a general belief that nature would take care of itself, that given time and, and left alone, it could repair itself. Yes. And there really is, I argue, a kind of fundamental shift in how scientists and non-scientists began to imagine how the biotic world functions with the Cold War and with the prospect of World War III. But prior to that, a lot of scientists believed in what they called succession theory, but basically the idea that it's inevitable that what we now call ecosystems will repair itself given time. And the Cold War and these experiments really destroyed that idea that there is a balance of nature and that there is one state that nature returns to and opened up the specter of a world in which there are types of damage, whether that be nuclear holocaust or climate change, in which species can no longer survive in the landscape or that ecosystems might persist, but they would function in a way that's totally different than what came before. And so humans have to step in to manage it. Yes. The idea that there's a threshold beyond which uh, of damage beyond which nature cannot repair itself kind of implies a world that requires ongoing human intervention in order to make the world work. There are quite a few scientists out there who believe in things like geoengineering, that we have to have technological solutions, technological fixes to 
the environmental problems that we face today and that we will face in the future. Does this idea of disturbance ecology, does that naturally lead to that kind of thinking? Geoengineering or carbon dioxide removal, I would put in the same kind of bucket of the kind of most interventionist proposals for restoration. I think that this kind of Cold War history and the history of restoration shows us that there's a really wide range of interventions that are possible and imaginable and available. I argue for interventions that are more along the lines of collaborations with non-human species. So I would put geoengineering or genetic engineering of species for climate change at the kind of extreme of maximizing human control of the process. And I would put passive conservation on the other side, where we just set aside a, a parcel of land and do nothing to it and argue that any intervention is bad. And these are the two kind of extremes that are at play in conservation today. And there's a really wide middle ground. And I think that that's where the greatest promise lies for the future. The United Nations just last year declared this to be the decade on ecosystem restoration. And we're seeing a lot more attention in international negotiation and among international corporations and investment in restoration. And I'm hopeful that going forward, there'll be more attention to this middle ground, this area that is between the two extremes of no intervention and full kind of extreme intervention into ecosystems. Ecologist Laura Martin. And go to the Future Tense website if you want more details. Back in 2012, quite a few excitable types got obsessed with a dodgy Mayan prophecy that the world was about to end. That year, imminently. It never happened, of course, but it did inspire our next guest to start thinking about human extinction. My name is Dirk Schulze-Makuch. I'm a professor for planetary habitability and astrobiology at the Technical University in Berlin, Germany. So Dirk and his colleague David Darling wrote a book called Mega Catastrophes, Nine Strange Ways the World Could End. Well, at that time, we liked to look into the different types of disasters. I mean, disaster movies were popular anyway. And we thought, okay, if we objectively assess what are the dangers for humanity and our planet, what would we come up with? And we used a catastrophe meter, and we basically based it on how likely a disaster or a catastrophe would happen and how many casualties would result of it. Because, you know, there are certain astronomical dangers like supernova eruptions or gamma ray bursts, asteroid impacts. But there's also human-induced ones like AI going haywire or something from the biosphere with a pandemic. And now, just over a decade later, Dirk has gone back to his catastrophe list to do a bit of revision. So before we hear what needs to change, let's find out how he'd rate his original predictions. With a lot of the natural disasters, we actually state the course. You know, we are still ranked the same as dangerous asteroid impacts or supernova explosions or supervolcanoes. So that all stayed about the same. 
So ones that really changed were the human-induced ones or cultural-induced ones. Now, climate change, let's look at that because you actually gave it quite a low probability score, didn't you? Around about two. Why was that? We focused at that time more on actually cooling on another ice age. And we thought, okay, that would really lower down the food processing, how much food we have, and also the resources. But the low score arrived mostly because the number of fatalities, because there's not really direct fatalities for global climate change, or they are not in the millions or billions compared to, example, uh, with a supervolcano eruption or something like that. And if you were revising this list now, would you put climate change higher? Yes, we would put it now higher because it's more obvious now and there's more scientific data that the consequences will be harsher. I mean, the water levels will rise. There is less land there for agriculture. So it will put a lot of more stress on things. The number of fatalities will be probably still not as high as some of the other disaster, but the likelihood that it happens and will be a big, big problem is much higher. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a good reminder that our attitudes and understanding about phenomena can change quite significantly in a short period of time. Well, that is true. And science or the scientific insights change with that too. That can change actually pretty quickly as well. Artificial intelligence is everywhere at the moment. Everyone's fearful of it, or many people are fearful of it. There are lots of stories out there about how it's going to change the world. You had artificial intelligence at five, at a score of five, so midway in your catastrophe rating. Where would you, where would you put it now? I think we had it probably right in the right ballpark there with a five. I mean, when we did the ratings, the highest was actually 7.5. So we never got anything really close to 10. And 7.5 was a pandemic. So a five is actually already pretty high. I mean, we'll still consider it, I, th- I think, at the same rank or the same severity. I mean, we knew before, I mean, there was this like the Terminator movies that AI can go wrong. But there's also the other danger that people are getting submerged to virtual reality and then can't deal with the real world anymore. So this is actually danger too. And I think that danger hasn't really been realized by many uh, people so far. And again, as with climate change, while it could have an enormous impact in the near term. It's not likely to lead to extinction or mass deaths. Well, that is true. And that's why, you know, it would not be ranked really very, very high because we wouldn't expect, you know, a huge amount of casualties. Like, you know, if we have an all-out nuclear war or a huge asteroid impact, the casualties would be in the billions. You wouldn't expect that with climate change or AI. Now, as you mentioned just earlier, Pandemic, the likelihood of a pandemic causing extinction of the species was put at 7.5, which was your highest score back in 2012. Given that we've seen COVID, it had enormous impact around the world. It led to a lot of deaths, but again, it didn't lead to uh, you know any kind of risk of extinction. Where would you rank a pandemic now in 2023? I think actually we had it right. I mean, what we were thinking more was something like the Black Death in the Middle Ages or the Spanish flu around the First World War. 
where you have huge amount of casualties or Ebola or some kind of those diseases, where you could could be that you take 90% of the population out and then the civilization would basically collapse. So that was our worst case scenario. And I think that is still the case. COVID was, of course, very bad for a lot of people, but it was not the worst fear basically materialized. And I know that you would now rank nuclear war as a a top threat to humanity. Where did it come in 2012? Well, in 2012, we didn't have it really too much on the radar. So we didn't put it under our top 10. So we discussed more in detail our only our top 10 dangers. So it wasn't on the list at that point? It wasn't really on the list, no. We thought it would be very unlikely that something like this would happen. I mean, you know, after the Cold War ended, and so it seemed to be, okay, there could be nuclear conflicts like between Pakistan and India or somewhere in the Middle East where there's always a little bit of a flashpoint. But an all-out nuclear war seemed to be extremely unlikely at that time. So it wasn't really on our radar. But obviously now with a a war in Ukraine, that has really changed. So you'd now give it an 8 out of 10. Yes, that's true. Because the likelihood has so much increased that it's, I mean, it's difficult to say where it statistically really is, but the likelihood is much, much higher. And of course, if that happens, the fatalities would be in the billions. And it's certainly much more in the public mindset, isn't it, at the moment? Absolutely, yes. What does all this tell you? You know, the process that you went through over 10 years ago and the review process, what can we take away from this? I think we can take from that away from that that the natural dangers, they are always imminent and they about stay the same. That hasn't changed too much. But the ones that the human-induced ones or the cultural or that we can influence, that changes a lot depending on our actions, really, how we uh, react to certain things, what we do. So we'll see now that the danger of the all-out nuclear war is the highest, or at least I, I see it as the highest. And that is a fallout of the last 10, 20 years of history, what has changed really since then. And that some other dangers may be a little bit lower, but it, it depends really on us as humans, as societies, as civilization. And now to that question of ethics, existential ethics, that is. You know, if you go back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, so this is ancient Greece, before Socrates was on the scene, you do have a number of them who discuss the future possibility of human extinction, but nobody really examines whether or not this would be good or bad. And then for like most of Western history, basically nobody talked about these issues at all. That starts to change after the atomic age commences in 1945, especially beginning in the 1950s. Philosopher Emil Torres. So it was the this new possibility of total self-annihilation as a result of thermonuclear conflict that was sort of the occasion that led philosophers to think seriously and rigorously about what it would mean if we you know, completely disappeared and the human story came to a complete and final end forever. And definitely over the past 20 years, 
as a result of climate change, as well as developments in artificial intelligence and new speculations about emerging technologies like nanotechnology and how that might actually introduce new ways for states or even non-state actors like individuals or terrorist groups to bring about the complete annihilation of humanity. That is definitely, you know, created a situation in which suddenly thinking about the ethics of human extinction is very relevant. And in fact, there's it's not just relevant, but there's a kind of urgency to it. Because, you know, if we are closer to the precipice of annihilation today or this century than maybe ever before in our species history, which goes back 300,000 years, then surely you would want to know, is, is our extinction, is the outcome of humanity no longer existing, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It's more relevant than ever before, and there is a degree of extreme moral urgency to reflecting carefully on this question. Now, Emile Torres has a forthcoming book on the issue called, naturally enough, Human Extinction, and it spells out the arguments both for and against the extinction of our species as a moral good. So, here's the question I'm sure you're all thinking. Why would anyone be cheering on the end of humanity? What might come to mind immediately when you think about a pro-extinctionist is some kind of sadist or ghoul or, you know, somebody with a death wish for humanity. But the individuals who have espoused these pro-extinctionist views have, you know, tended to be very concerned about all of the suffering and pain and misery and anguish and anxiety that going extinct might entail, and hence have claimed that, you know, we should actually do what we can to avoid extinction, at least if it involves some kind of involuntary catastrophe. So that being said, they would also claim that the the outcome, the resulting outcome of no longer existing itself would be in some sense better. And many of them would point to the fact that if we die out, all of the future suffering that would otherwise exist from genocides to child abuse to torture would no longer exist. And that would be a good thing. It would be better for those things to, to not exist than for us to continue existing. And as a result, there being future incidents of torture and future genocides. So you could have this sort of philosophical suffering focused argument for why being extinct itself would be better or good. But you could also have this environmentalist perspective on things and say, well, I mean, humanity is just this juggernaut of destruction in the world. You know, we've raised forests, we've destroyed ecosystems, we've pushed species up to the brink of extinction, and many past that brink. You know, we're in the early stages of the sixth major mass extinction event in the 3.8 billion year history of life on Earth. So this new extinction, mass extinction event, is completely anthropogenic. It's entirely caused by humans. So if there are no more humans in the world, then there's no more human-caused evil. So that is yet another reason why somebody might say, yeah, being extinct itself would be better than continuing to exist. Although they would add that going extinct, if it's caused in a catastrophe or if it's you know, involuntarily inflicted by some other you know, group of human beings, that would be very bad and that would be very wrong. So if the process of, of extinction is important here, how do you actually end up going extinct as a species without that kind of suffering that we're talking about? It's a great question. So there are, I think, three main possibilities on the menu. One is omnicide. So omnicide is defined as the murder of everyone. 
So that's one possibility. And many pro-extinctions would say murdering everybody is obviously horribly immoral. The other possibility is called pro-mortalism. And this is where everybody around the world would take their own lives. There have been a few pro-extinctionists who have actually proposed this and actually defended this, this view, but not many. The view that's primarily favored by pro-extinctionists is called antinatalism. And as the term suggests, that means that we should stop having children. So the way they envision it is that it would be completely voluntary and it wouldn't introduce any kind of extra suffering and it wouldn't cut anyone's life short. All right, so we've talked about the views of the pro-extinctionists. What are the arguments, the philosophical arguments, made against the species going extinct? Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of them. They're, they're really fascinating. And so I group them under the heading of further loss views. And the reason I use that term is that they would argue that human extinction would be bad, that being extinct itself is a source of badness independent of how we go extinct, because being extinct would entail certain further losses. What might these further losses be? Well, one would be the loss of all future happiness. So there are some philosophers out there who believe that that our sole moral obligation in the universe is to create as much value as possible. And value might mean something like happiness. So the more happiness there is that exists in the universe, in total, the better the universe becomes. So it immediately follows that if humanity goes extinct, then all of those future lives, and there could be an enormous number, all of those future people would not exist. And consequently, all the happiness that they would bring into the universe would also be erased before the hands of time have a chance to draw. It's interesting, isn't it, that these future considerations occur on both sides of this uh, this ethical argument. It's, this is not just about the here and now and, and our uh, present situation. Exactly right. So I'm glad you mentioned that because this points to a third class of views. So in addition to pro-extinctionism, and in addition to these further loss views, you also have equivalence views, as I call them. So basically, the idea behind the equivalence view is that the state or condition of being extinct, it's not bad, but it's not good either. And the reasoning behind this is basically that, look, if there's nobody around in the universe to bemoan the loss of humanity or to bemoan the loss of the arts, the sciences, morality, laughter, and so on, then nobody's actually harmed by being extinct. The goodness or badness of human extinction comes down entirely to the details of how going extinct happens. Beyond that, there's just nothing to say about being extinct because there are no people to be harmed by being extinct. Whereas people who have these further lost views says, no, 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 these things matter. The loss of these things matter, even if there's nobody around. And putting you on the spot, have you determined what your position would be? Do you have a position? Yeah, I do. So, you know, I find the equivalence view to be compelling. My initial thought is that there is something that sort of kicks me in the gut about the thought that, of there being no more laughter and poetry and so on in the future. But I'm not sure that that is really morally relevant. That value is really in relation to us. So if we no longer exist, I don't think that it's a bad thing for those things to no longer exist either. And the reason I don't think it's that morally relevant is because of what I just said. There's nobody around to be harmed by the absence of these things. And then as soon as I shift and start seriously thinking about 
all of the suffering in the world and all of the, you know, the worst anxieties and torture and child abuse and, you know, all of the heartbreak and so on. And then I, I, I do my best to imagine these things in the future, perhaps extending far into the future. I find myself somewhat sympathetic with the pro-extinctionist view that if we cease to exist, all of these evils will disappear as well. And although I think it's a dark thought and, you know, I haven't come to peace with that thought, I nonetheless find it intellectually and morally compelling. So overall, I think human extinction is quite a mixed bag. There are reasons for believing that it would be a tragedy. Also some reasons for thinking it wouldn't be all that bad, at least not the outcome, at least not being extinct. Well, it's a fascinating topic. Emil Torres, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. And that's Future Tense for another week. As I said, the existential edition. You can hear it again by going to the Future Tense website, or you can find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. My co-producer here on the show is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.